Hi, you're listening to the New Space India podcast, a bi-weekly talk show that exclusively brings insights from the Indian space activities ecosystem. I'm your host Narayan, the co-founder of India's first space-focused think tank, Spaceport Sarabhai. Guests on the New Space India podcast help you understand space activities related macro and micro trends within India in all aspects including space history, local industry, space science, technology evolution, law and policy, art and more. The New Space India podcast is supported by Dassault Systems, a global leader in providing businesses and people with collaborative virtual environments to enable sustainable innovations. Dassault Systems Solutions supports startups, small and medium scale enterprises and original equipment manufacturers in developing disruptive solutions for space launchers and satellites. Hi and welcome to yet another episode of the New Space India podcast. Today we have here Konark who is in the middle of orchestrating a lot of the relationship and the dialogue between India and US with Carnegie. Konark, thank you so much for taking the time in having this conversation. This will be a very exciting episode to learn about India US space cooperation especially post sanctions era. So thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure to be on the podcast, Narayan. I've been a fan of the podcast for a while now, as I've told you earlier as well, and I've followed quite a few of the episodes also. So yeah, great to be here. Thank you. So let's begin with a brief history of India and U.S. cooperation in space, and let me just frame this in a way where people know that India and U.S. were very early collaborators in space before the sanctions actually hit India. In fact, the first rocket that was flown out of India. the nike apache rocket was supplied by the us and then professor sarabhai who's also the founder of the space program in india was also an adjunct professor at mit where a lot of the young talented isro scientists were sent to study to learn to plan for exercises and so on so there was even cooperation with ford aerospace as i remember in getting a satellite built and so on there's been a lot of initial early days of cooperation obviously even places like the site experiment where a nasa satellite was actually used to prove that satellite communications could be useful for india is is one part of that india us cooperation so i think there's a very deep history behind all of this and how india and us collaborated in space but i think what is today more of the millennial and the gen z history that people remember is more of the era of sanctions that india faced from the us after the nuclear tests and so on and obviously today with all the other things that are happening things are changing and there's more and more space cooperation but for this particular podcast let's begin with more or less the post sanctions era and then discuss that from there forward do you have a sense of where did the both countries see each other especially post sanctions and we briefly talked about the tsa just before starting this recording it'll be very interesting to know on the political sphere where these countries saw each other in, in especially in the post sanctions era and then how this navigation towards okay we should now start talking to each other about more cooperation and space as a being a part of that cooperation and eventually things proceeded with the signing of the tsa and opening up of the launch services agreement for india so it'll be very interesting to hear your views and brief history of this period 
Thank you, Narayan. We've all heard about India's uh, nuclear test in 1998, which effectively led to sanctions being imposed on not just, I think, the few institutions like the Baba Atomic Research Center, but also ISRO as well. That was one of the entities sanctioned by the entire you know, U.S. sanctions. But I must add that at this point, the U.S. at the same time did not completely close the door to exploring a way to address its nuclear differences with India. And so there was a strategic dialogue at the time initiated between Deputy Secretary of State at that time, Strobe Talbot, and then Foreign Minister Jaswan Singh. And the idea was to basically enter into a discussion to sort of bridge the gap as to where does India stand, what can be possibly done to restart civilian nuclear trade with India. And while the dialogue necessarily did not necessarily succeed, it did lead to them understanding each other's situations a bit more, a bit more, I think, was able to understand where they were both coming from. So this was, I think, culminated in 2002 with the formation of the HTCG, which is the High Technology Cooperation Group, which was essentially supposed to facilitate high-level technology commerce between the two countries, but at the same time was also focused on space cooperation as well. Now, I have to mention here that the HTCG was always envisioned by the Bush administration in 2002 as like a glide path. They said that this would be based on reciprocal movement by India also towards certain things which the U.S. wants and which India eventually did comply with. So I think India at the same time passed something called the Weapons of Mass Destruction and their Delivery Systems Bill in 2005, which basically put the export control regime in India in conformity with the U.S. in the international export controls. There was always a movement towards bridging the gap and trying to understand how they can both sort of restart civilian nuclear trade. And of course, the HTCG also had spoken about rekindling space cooperation as well. Now, in July of 2005, they came out with this new initiative called the NSSP, the Next Steps in Strategic Partnership. This was an initiative which was not based on reciprocal arrangements anymore. It was more about the grand announcement by the Bush administration that essentially they will start to kickstart civilian nuclear trade with India, which would mean you basically give India a waiver. Now, what this would involve is that India would have to highlight which of the nuclear facilities it will earmark as civilian then basically place them under the IAEA safeguards, announce an additional protocol which announces that it commits to non-proliferation. And I think India had also committed to, this was towards the end of the entire deal, but also committed to in the form of a letter of intent to purchase nuclear reactors from American entities as well. So there was this sort of roadmap eventually announced how India can come out of the nuclear apartheid and become a full-fledged member of the civilian nuclear trade community. Space cooperation was on the agenda, as I mentioned, but at the time, it was mostly restricted to, I would say, I would say it's more about civil and military use. So the NSSP only basically liberalized the U.S. export controls when it came to items in dual use and military use, but export controls and munition items were very much in place. And even though the impact was diminishing, because at the time of the sanctions, I believe, Almost 25% of all the exports to India required an export license. This has eventually fallen now, I think, presently to 0.4%. And I think the BIS, which is a part of the U.S. Department of Commerce, actually has the figures to substantiate this, which is that 0.4% of all the high-tech commerce and overall commerce from U.S. to India are subject to a BIS license. I think I'll leave it here for now, but if you have any further questions on what happened next and what were the next steps, I'll be happy to elaborate on that. Yeah, carry on. I would say it is very interesting to hear that narrative and the story in itself. It will be very interesting. So please carry on. Sure. 
So I think the nuclear agreement, if I can just talk about the nuclear deal for a brief moment, the idea was that India would essentially announce which of the facilities were under the civilian safeguards, subject to the IAEA. Once it did that, then the US would pass an enabling law called the Hyde Act, which it did eventually in December of 2006. Subsequently, a bilateral negotiation had taken place subsequent to the Hyde Act being passed. And this led to something called the 1 to 3 Agreement, which was essentially a civilian nuclear cooperation agreement on peaceful uses of nuclear energy between India and the US in July 2007. Subsequently, I think there was a political stalemate within India. So how do you go about this? There was a lot of internal, I think, discussion as to whether India should actually go ahead with this. But however, in September of 2008, the nuclear suppliers group essentially gave India a waiver and changed its rules. And this was subsequently implemented in the form of a final law by the U.S. Congress in 2008. So that's where the nuclear deal pretty much stands. And I think space cooperation was also eventually kickstarted as a result of that. Now, as a part of this negotiation, India and U.S. had also signed something called the TSA, which is a Technology Safeguards Agreement. I think the essential purpose of this TSA was to ensure that any payloads which go on board Indian rockets, you know, that there is a compromise when it comes to the actual data and the information relating to those payloads. That was taken care of. However, subsequently, the US side, from what I understand, also insisted on India signing a CSLA, which is a commercial space launch agreement. And CSLA is something which was, I think, put forth by 2005 to India. And the idea was to protect the small satellite industry from competing with the government-controlled foreign launches. So essentially, the idea was that you will pursue into CSLA essentially try to oblige non-US rocket launchers to price their services as desired or at par with those for US launch services. There was a perception that India's ISRO was pricing its launch services below market cost and this was having not the best effect on American launch services as well. So yeah, the idea was to essentially make sure that there was a parity between the launch services of both the countries and in, in, in so didn't really get to play put subsidies into the launch services now i can go on and talk about why i think this is not necessarily a sound argument as it stands today so if you want me to continue with this naran i'll be happy to elaborate on this yeah yeah absolutely it'll be very interesting to know why do you believe that this legacy agreement because i believe that the commercial space launch agreement is also in place with russia and any country that wants to launch us payloads Sure. So I'll just, yeah. So I think they had signed in the 90s a CSLA with the Chinese. And I think they was eventually allowed to lapse from what I understand, from whatever I've read on this topic. The one with the Chinese was eventually allowed to lapse. And the one with the Chinese was also a lot more permissive. So there was no such quota. So I think the one being, being proposed for India basically said that there's going to be a, there's going to be a maximum number of launches you can do when it comes to US satellites. Whereas the similar provision was not put into the CSLA with the Chinese. And obviously now, as I mentioned, the CSLA with the Chinese has lapsed. If you can allow a CSLA with a country like China, with whom you don't even have official civil space cooperation owing to the Wolf Amendment, then why is India sort of being held out as a country for which you need a CSLA? That's not very clear. Number two, ISRO is not that big a player. So from what I remember, there was a question raised in the parliament in 2016 July by MP Harivanch, Mr. Harivanch. 
And he was just asking about what ISRO's market share in the overall global launch services market. And he put the figure at 4%. However, the Minister of State for the PMO, who also handles space matters as well, said that the actual market share hovers close to around 0.6%, owing to the fact that Antrix Corporation, I think at the time the Antrix Corporation, which was the commercial arm of ISRO, did not really see considerable revenue coming from launch, from the commercial launches. There you have the PMO Minister of State himself saying that the that the overall global launch services market share is not is actually below four percent. So, if the U.S. perception was true that India has an unfair advantage owing to its subsidized launch services, India should have had a much much larger market share, which it doesn't have. You know, so that's I think inaccurate on the part of the U.S. to hold this accountable for allegedly subsidizing the launches. Number two, I think every space agency is also a beneficiary of state largesse, right? So I think, Anara, and you also had an article on this, I think quite some time back in some uh, publication, where you spoke about, it's not just about the subsidies, it's also about the fact that certain arms of the U.S. armed forces in excess of what is actually the fair value of the launch cost. So I think SpaceX, I think you had mentioned, was a beneficiary of remuneration or basically a contract which gave them a very hefty remuneration for the launch services being offered by them, perhaps in excess of what was being offered by the other armed forces of the other countries. And this is something which has been brought up by the CEO of Ariane Space as well, that sort of is that SpaceX was the beneficiary of excessive government launch contracts given by the US government. Also, I've seen that in the European Commission in its appraisal of the joint venture between Airbus Group and Safran had actually openly acknowledged that, that that there is a subsidies given to these kind of state-owned agencies when it comes to giving them launch contracts. Coming back to the original point, I don't know why ISRO is being singled out here when pretty much every space agency does enjoy a certain kind of subsidy when it comes to pricing their launch services. I'd also have to add here that there is a perception in the U.S., and this is true because I've read this in some of the discussions which have happened in the U.S. Congress, where they believe that India does not grant reciprocal access to foreign satellite service providers when it comes to the satellite communications market in India. Now, this is an erroneous assertion, I believe, because while there is a lack of clarity as to how much of FDI is actually allowed in satellite communications, which hovers between 74% to 100%, FDI is allowed, right? It just becomes a question of whether it's under the automatic route or if it's under the government route, which means that you would have to seek government permission if it's under the government route. But the perception that India does not allow any FDI in satellite communications is incorrect. And I don't know if that is at the heart of the fact that they don't want to allow satellite launch cost, satellite launch services of US satellites to go on Indian rockets. Last point here, I would say, and this is based on publicly available information, is that there's a notion that ISRO is really cheap in terms of pricing and services, uh, but so it's also cost efficient. It's, it doesn't necessarily see much cost overruns when it comes to its projects. That being said, based on publicly available data, I am not entirely sure that ISRO's launches are actually the cheapest on the market. So this is basically figure coming from The Wire and also from Bloomberg Quint, which basically says that India's PSLB deploys around 1,400 kilograms to the GTO and would charge anything between $15 million to $30 million. Now, if you go and calculate the price per kilogram, which I think should be the real indicator of what the price is, it should not be the overall price charged by ISRO. It should be the price per kilogram, which is eventually estimated. So ISRO's rate per kilogram, if you look at the figure of $15 million to $30 million for 1,400 kilograms to the GTO, 
works out to around 10,000 to, to around 21,000 US dollars per kilogram. And then if one were to look at the capability of SpaceX's Falcon 9, which carries around 8,300 kilograms of the GTO, for which a charge is around $60 million, the rate per kilogram for SpaceX works out to be $7,500. So this is a, approximately 25% cheaper than the rate which is charged by the PSLV for launches to GTO. So again, this is not something which substantiates the argument that ISRO has offered the cheapest launch services on the market. So given all these factors, I don't, I'm not entirely sure why is there still an insistence on CSLA, although obviously U.S. satellite makers are given a waiver every now and then by the U.S. FAA to launch their satellite on the Indian rockets, but I'm not sure if this CSLA requirement serves any purpose anymore. Absolutely. It will be very interesting to see this pan out, especially I think as the private launch capacity from India will come up to the market if and when Skyroot and Agnikol and so on are also very successful. And it will be interesting to see what that would be then the case, because obviously then they may be using in part a little bit of launch infrastructure and support in terms of the spaceport and everything from ISRO as well. Any thoughts around this? Around the fact that this might, that eventually private launch service providers will also come into the picture? Yeah. That's interesting. I think this is going to do India a great service if that happens because one of the ways which some commentators had thought of to get around this restriction of getting a CSLA was to privatize the PSLV because then it would not be a government-owned entity anymore. So it wouldn't be subject to this requirement because the CSLA is only applicable to state launch services, right? So one of the arguments made at the time was that maybe we should just privatize the PSLV so it comes out of the ambit of what is essentially a state launch service provider. So yeah, I think the fact that you have a proliferation of private launch services would essentially mean that the argument that this is being subsidized by the state goes out the window. So I think it can only augur well for India to get out of the CSLA requirement. Yeah, the other part of all of this, we discussed about launch. The overall picture is also interesting with respect to institutional cooperation around the satellites or R&D and so on. So the more uh, recent project that everyone is aware of, where there's been a lot of cooperation that is ongoing is with the NISAR satellite that right. India and US are building together as a cooperation between NASA and ISRO. And it'll be interesting to hear from you out of the outside of NISAR, for example, NISAR is a scientific R&D mission, a G2G cooperation as such. What are the steps that are actually being taken to look at more of a business to business level cooperation today? So, yeah, I think currently there's this new initiative on critical and emerging technologies, which was launched at the sidelines of the Tokyo Quad Summit in May of 2022. And basically that's a way for India and US to cooperate on emerging and strategic tech, which includes space and includes commercial space cooperation. From the 2005 Joint Working Group on Civil Space Cooperation, now we have thought about commercial space cooperation, which is long overdue. That is on the agenda. And the recent readout of the White House fact sheet from January of 2023 speaks about how the Civil Space Cooperation Joint Working Group should be expanded to have an, have an element of commercial cooperation as well. Now, what are the deliverables as per the fact sheet? I think they've spoken about things like the commercial lunar payload services, 
which is essentially a bunch of services for the Artemis missions to the moon. And there are a lot of companies which have been given a contract by NASA to deliver these services. And because these companies are delivering services, they are at a liberty to decide how they manage their own supply chains, subject, of course, to the usual restrictions on foreign ownership and funding. So the idea behind this is that since CLPS is a services contract, it will not be really subject to the ITAR laws as much. And number two, since the contracts have already been given out, it is up to these private companies now to decide how they want to further subcontract these contracts, which are, by the way, massive contracts also. They're not small contracts. They run, they run into hundreds of millions of dollars. So there is an opportunity for Indian companies there. And I think the fact sheet also speaks about how both ISRO and NASA can work together to identify companies in both the Indian side and the US side who can work together on this. So that's one part of the element cooperation of the element of commercial cooperation. I can speak about the other projects also, which have been listed in the fact sheet as well, which is not about commercial cooperation, but it's about civil space cooperation. So one of these is the Gaganyaan, India's human space flight mission. Now, there's talk about training Indian astronauts at the Johnson Space Center in US. But I think there are some issues around this in terms of the logistics. How would that actually happen? So NASA came out with this report in January of this year which was issued by the Office of the Inspector General. And they spoke about how the Artemis program is a very ambitious program, but it's not going as smoothly as was originally envisioned because astronauts who will be a part of the program, including the international ones, have a hard time cooperating with NASA. And this is largely because of the export control laws which have been put in place in the US. The average career of an astronaut is around three decades from what I've read. And out of those three decades, they spent probably around one month to six months in space. So it's not too much time in space. The remaining time is basically on the ground. So the idea was to essentially make sure that these international astronauts are able to not just serve in space at, at the ISS or at the gateway component of the Artemis mission, which is being built. The idea was to make sure that they're also able to offer their expertise when they're on the ground as well. The problem is that Export control laws in the U.S. make it a bit difficult for these astronauts to be looped into the mission prior to the prior to the launch and also after the after they come back to Earth, which is a massive loss because uh, you, you basically look forward to utilizing the astronauts' expertise for ground-based tasks also once the mission is over. So that I think is a lost opportunity for NASA if they don't really tweak their export control laws. NASA also only has a strength of around forty to forty-four astronauts, from what I understand. And they will probably need all the cooperation in terms of astronauts, which they can get. So Indian Gaganyaan astronauts could actually be really helpful here. But again, I think the export control laws will probably be, be a stumbling block here. I'm happy to speak more on the joint working group on civil space cooperation as well. But I think since you spoke about commercial cooperation only, I think I'll limit it to this for now. Yeah, no, it'll be obviously an extension to 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 all of this is also where I see the gaps that exist where uniquely India and US cooperation matters a lot, right? For example, today, if you look at scale up capital that is available to commercial businesses in India, uh, that is very limited in India because the fund sizes in India for venture capital and even private equity are quite small compared to what it is in the US most of the funds that are in the deep tech scene in India are often between 20 and $50 million. And that's probably even just a one check that is written by one large VC in the US to a US company. 
So there are some pockets where cooperation needs to go above and beyond just technology. It could also be in how do you, for example, en- enable capital to flow in a way where in there are incentives on both the side for that capital inflow to happen. And obviously there is a upside for the input side of the capital. And then there's a, a return on investment there, which is also then not heavily taxed or so on because the capital is leaving the US. This is something that I've not seen a lot of discussion on. Have you heard anything on these lines? So private capital, you're right, in India has not been at the same levels as seen in the US. But I'll give a brief answer to this. I think one way to make this work would again be to go back to the ISET, where there is a talk about a defense innovation bridge. And the defense innovation bridge idea is to look at the defense requirements of both the countries and see how we can involve companies from each other's country's ecosystems. That's the idea behind the defense innovation bridge. And given how space is largely dual use, space could also be looped into this entire project of defense innovation bridge as well. I think the challenge would be here, Narayan, and I think you've spoken at length about this, which is procurement, right? How do you possibly ensure that you allow U.S. taxpayer funds to be utilized for to utilize to procure services or basically products from Indian companies and vice versa. Procurement is a sensitive issue in India as well. And even though we spend around 20% of our GDP on public procurement in India, you know, how do we make sure that, first of all, that money goes to the Indian startups? And number two, it goes to some American companies as well because they're unlikely to open up their procurement market unless we open up ours. So I think one way to probably think about this is to look at how the DIU, which is the Defense Innovation Unit in the U.S., and the IDEX, which is a part of the Ministry of Defense in India, how they can possibly have skin in the game, which is to say that if IDEX is going to incubate an American company from the get-go and offer it, say, like a defense contract, then it has an incentive to ensure that company remains there and money continues to flow to it, vice versa as well. If DIU sort of funds through the Defense Innovation Bridge Indian companies and is able to procure services and products from them, there's a meshing of the defense ecosystems in that case. But again, this would have to depend on procurement. And I think that's a pretty convoluted question as to what are the roadblocks so far when it comes to procurement? What is holding back both the countries from opening up the procurement ecosystems to each other? Hey, you talked about both the ISET as well as the Defense Innovation Bridge. What are the things that you think beyond already the things that you mentioned are on the table, both on the G2G and the B2B cooperation on both these aspects? And how do you see this panning out in an ideal scenario? So the Defense Innovation Bridge is a part of the ISET fact sheet. I think one of the hallmarks of this, I think, is which is going to be closely looked at is going to be the possible sale of the GE engines to India. That's going to be, I think, the really big thing, which if it comes through, is going to be massive for the DIB or the Defense Innovation Bridge. The lower hanging fruits, I think, which is a term I'm using loosely because it's not that low hanging, but would be probably to think about, you know, what I said right now, incubating the startups from each other's ecosystems. Now, Defense Innovation Bridge is meant to socialize all the stakeholders, which includes academia, incubation hubs, the VC funds, the prime contractors from the US DOD, as well as the startups from both the Indian and the U.S. ecosystems to come together and basically look at what each of them are doing. So this might even take the form of corporate protege mentor programs, right? Like where basically the likes of maybe Raytheon, Lockheed Martin and Boeing come to an expo and they basically do a session where they talk about what they look for when they evaluate a startup, what they look for when they want to 
co-develop with a young startup. This could also be a place where you have an exhibition where Indian startups and American ones also hawk their wares and talk about what are the new things they're developing and how that plays into the entire defense ecosystem. Yeah, I think it's essentially having that first meeting and perhaps there can be some kind of an announcement of a joint challenge. So what could probably happen in as a result of this defense innovation bridge is that you can probably have a situation where you announce a joint challenge like is done like with the IDEX in India and DRU and US where both the DOD and the MOD come together and say okay we have a joint challenge where you know essentially one of the prerequisites will be for US and Indian companies to partner with each other and it doesn't have to be announced now I think there is going to be a PM strip is coming to the US in the next few months and a good way to build up on that trip would be to announce something during that trip that hey in the next seven to eight months we're going to probably think about issuing a joint a joint challenge for this particular defense defense equipment. I think that would be a good way to get started, Narayan. Yeah, that will be really interesting to see how all of these will pan out. There's been a recent, obviously, the civil space dialogue that exists between NASA and ISRO as a part of the India-US civil space dialogue. Uh, there have been a recent, obviously, inclusion of the business side of it as well for the first time. Are there any prospects now from a practical perspective? The only thing that I've seen really happen over the many course of years is the outsourcing model of basically an overseas development center, an ODC model that is used by certain U.S. companies in India, that has been not highlighted as much because, in fact, Wiresat and Dukes and a couple of other companies from the U.S. actually have development centers that are in India where network engineers and others actually do software development and and help them run their business in this ODC model. And this is, again, an interesting area where there could be a lot of trickling down of work that comes to, comes down to India in a in an ODC model where many of the U.S. companies that are there, if the you know bridge exists through so either the defense or so on, that there is no doubts about protection of IP or or things like this. This is another interesting area that that could work out. It'll be very interesting to see. Obviously, outside of capital, outside of projects, outside of markets being opened up which are all the other possibilities that that exist uh, for practical economics to take place and then for dialogue to happen in a way where these kinds of very low-hanging fruits can be a part of that. Are there any things that you think can, you can add to this list or uh, any thoughts around this? Narayan, I think it's pretty laudable that the fact that they've established these ODCs in India. But I think movement would have to come from the top. I appreciate the fact that there's a bottom-up approach sometime required in certain cases. The Civil Space Cooperation Joint Working Group needs to be retooled, and I think you've spoken about this earlier as well, and I'll just pretty much elaborate on that. Currently, the, the, the Joint Working Group on Civil Space Cooperation is basically ministry, the ministry officials from the MEA, ISRO centers, the Department of Science and Technology, and on the U.S. side, you have the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration the U.S. Department of Commerce and the U.S. Geological Survey, along with a few other departments. I think the U.S. Air Force is also there. Now, what is really needed to make this an empowered body which can issue decisions, which can be implemented immediately? Because I think the idea is for the private sector to be enabled, right? And for that, you need to have decisions which really are taken at the very top. 
So from India, this would probably, the civil space joint working group should ideally also involve the Space Commission, which is a high-powered body, which includes the National Security Advisor, the Cabinet Secretary, the Foreign Secretary, the Principal Secretary to the Prime Minister, the ISRO Chairperson, and the in-space chairperson as well. On the US side, I think, again, this can have people from the National Space Council, which includes the chair, which is the vice president of the US itself. So when you have sort of leadership at that level taking decisions, that will essentially expedite the pace at which space cooperation moves. I think a more refined and a more direct and a more empowered mechanism is required to propel talks and engage in outcome-oriented discussions, which can help both sides. The civil space cooperation joint working group doesn't even have to be the sole arbiter of these matters, right? You can either augmented with this cooperation between the Indian Space Commission and the U.S. National Space Council, or you can have even collaboration happening as a part of the Defense Innovation Bridge. The Defense Innovation Bridge and the Civil Space Cooperation are two distinct mechanisms under the ISET, now which will be going forward and involving private enterprises. I mean, I think the point of all this is that the Civil Space Cooperation Joint Working Group does not have to remain the sole arbiter of inter, you know, of U.S.-India collaboration and cooperation in space. And one thing that we actually did not really talk at length at this podcast so far is ITAR and the effect of ITAR and the reform in ITAR possibly for India-US space cooperation. There's been a few countries that have been talking about ITAR and especially US allies. Recently, I have read a piece from someone in Australia who said that ITAR should be removed for Australia so that US cooperation with Australia builds up to a large extent. I know that obviously there was a recent workshop in Bangalore for ITAR-related matters and so on. What are your thoughts around ITAR and how it should evolve for this cooperation to benefit parties on both sides? Excuse me. So for the ITAR, I think it's good to give our listeners a perspective on, I'm sure there are experts on this, but for those who may be joining us and maybe hearing about ITAR for the first time, I think it's, so essentially the U.S. regulates exports of space technology through two particular mechanisms. One is the ITAR, one is the EAR. So the EAR essentially controls dual-use goods and technologies which have civil, commercial, and intelligence applications. And this is essentially something which is there in the commerce control list, which is controlled by the U.S. Department of Commerce. But you also have ITAR, and from whatever I have read in the actual manual of the Department of State on ITAR, the majority of space tech still falls under the ITAR. This includes critical defense article services and technologies. And ITAR, basically, to put it shortly, is, is much more restrictive in terms of what is permitted to be exported. EAR is not that restrictive. And EAR is basically regulated by the Bureau of Industry and Security under the Department of Commerce. Whereas there is the DDTC, the Directorate of Defense Trading Controls under the Department of State in USA, which looks at the ITAR. Now, why is ITAR a big concern? Because ITAR basically, as I mentioned, prevents, it's quite restrictive in any kind of tech leaving the U.S. Uh, this has various ramifications. So first, if you're an Indian company which is looking to source equipment from American suppliers, even having preliminary talks on the issue can be a bit difficult, right? Because you have to share with your buyers what you're willing to sell. And sometimes that might lead to a discussion of certain data, you know, technical information, which is within the purview of the ITAR. So that sort of prevents a very frank conversation from taking place from the very get-go. Second, from what I've heard is that from Indian companies itself, is that those who have offices in both the U.S. and India, even something as benign as intra-corporation or inter-intra-corporate information sharing becomes a big hassle. 
getting information from one office to the other is also subject to the ITAR. Third, and I think this is not brought up enough, is that there's something when you apply for an ITAR license, you can either be given an approval or a denial or a modified approval or an RWA. RWA is basically returned without action. But that is basically something which is done by the DC, provided like the application is not complete or if there's a or if there's a wrong license being filed, if there's a wrong application being filed for the license, then the RWA is essentially issued in those cases. Now, what I understand, 15%, 1-5% of all the applications resulted in RWA. And the thing is that the RWA are basically having the same effect as a denial because obviously there is no approval coming. But these do not show up in the overall list of disapprovals. So when you look at the overall items being approved or disapproved, you might say, okay, of all the thousand applications made by Indian enterprises to get this particular technology from the US, only four were denied. But it could be that around 100 were basically under the RWA. So that doesn't really show the complete picture of what is actually approved and what is not. I would say the fourth ramification of the ITAR is that Indian armed forces sometimes who might be keen to look at other options when it comes to procuring defense equipment. Like I think in 2011, we had this RCA, a medium multi-role combat aircraft, which the Indian Air Force wanted. And Lockheed Martin and Boeing had bid for this thing as well, but they were essentially eliminated because it was perceived that they would have a higher cost of servicing it because components might not be easily forthcoming due to ITAR itself. So that was also a reason, I think, why they were possibly rejected by the Indian Armed Forces when it came to came to their bidding. Another ramification is self-correction. A lot of Indian entities believe that if they have to go for an ITAR application, then that would require engaging legal counsel in both the US and India as well, which is not exactly a cheap proposition. That basically leads them to not even put in an application in the first place. They're like, okay, first of all, there's no certainty that the application will come through. And when it does, it will probably take a year or so. And that, for a startup, can make a difference between life and death. Self-correction is also there by Indian companies when it comes to not applying for the IDAR application in the first place. And I think from the American point of view, it's also not very, it's not encouraging to have restrictions which don't serve their purpose anymore. So, for example, there's talk about the prospect of an ITAR-free product. So, basically, if America is going to play hardball when it comes to supplying its technology in space, then you have other enterprises from the US and other parts, of, pardon me, from the EU and other parts of the world who fill in that gap. So what happens is that they essentially start to design their technology using components which are not subject to US ITAR in the first place, which lead to the prospect of what is called an ITAR-free product. So it's not in the US interest to have these products because they essentially want to regulate the trade which takes place in space technology. And the more tight or more restrictive they are in terms of the regulations under the ITAR, the more likely the prospect of an ITAR-free product becomes. And I would say that the last thing is that if you want to work with countries which you look at possible allies, then interoperability also is a very important thing. Interoperability of weapon systems, which is again hindered when you have an ITAR restriction. And that also plays spoil sport as well. Yeah, I think that is basically the ramifications of ITAR. That is essentially the bottlenecks which they present as well. That's an excellent overview. Thank you so much for that. So one of the aspects of this, again, going down to the defense innovation bridge from a practical standpoint is how will then demand or 
procurement work on both sides will be an interesting discussion to have. Obviously, we talked briefly about markets being opened up on both sides, although the U.S. market obviously is then skewed to be very large over India in, in that sense. But then there is quite a lot of trade that is already happening, which people don't notice with companies like Maxar, Capella and a few others selling imagery worth millions of dollars to India. Uh, to a large extent and it's the same with probably other aspects of communication or electronic intelligence and things like this uh, as well. But then as a concrete step within the ISET as well as the Defense Innovation Bridge, are there any specific programs that you see coming out where there would be specific procurement channels that would be activated through this or is it just a high-level framework that allows policymakers to open up the tunnel and then people are then left to each other to figure this out. How do you see this playing out? So Narayan, I think I'd say that a lot hinges on the result of the Defense Innovation Bridge. This is the first of its kind initiative between the US and India. And the Civil Space Group, the Civil Space Cooperation Joint Working Group has been there for around 18 years now. And that has that has had its fair share of accomplishments, although I would say they could have done more. But the Defense Innovation Bridge is essentially how it plays out over the next one year. That will be very critical to see if there are any exceptions made in the procurement systems of both the countries towards the enterprises from each other's ecosystems as well. So I would say that is the first thing which we need to look at, how the Defense Innovation Bridge plays out. The second thing which I would look at, and that's more of a long-term deliverable, because honestly, export controls uh, going back to the issue of ITAR, is not something which is going to be liberalized overnight. And I'll offer you various reasons. But the last time the reform happened in the ITAR was in 2013-14. Uh, you know, President Obama at that time, I think in 2009, had announced that they will undertake an export control reform initiative, ECRI. And this essentially began around that time. And from what I've spoken to, on from, from the officials I've spoken to in both the Department of Commerce and Department of State in the U.S., this ended around 2019 and 2020. So it was a 10-year initiative. And this essentially led to communication satellites being moved from the more restrictive uh, U.S. munitions list to the more permissive commerce control list. And what has happened as a result of that is that 75% of pretty much all satellites have moved from the U.S. munitions list to the commerce control list. Now, I don't know what the officials in the Department of State feel about this. I can't imagine that they're all that thrilled about the fact that 75% of their jurisdiction and satellites has been taken away from them. Number two, at a time when everybody's talking about this concept of small yard and high fences. So the US NSA, Jake Sullivan, has spoken about how moving forward, they'll have this concept where they will maintain certain technologies within a very small yard, but with very high fences and higher fences, in fact, than before. So would it be okay or would it be actually feasible for India to seek an exception which goes beyond the existing strategic trade authorization exception, which India enjoys? Like, would that be even forthcoming? At a time when everybody is keen on regulating their own tech, we have seen what's happened with the semiconductor ecosystem where they have placed these very stringent controls on what can be exported and what cannot be exported. So I'm not sure if that's going to come through. And number three, this is essentially a congressional thing. Export controls are very much a congressional tool. I'm sure the president in US does sign trade deals and liberalizes export controls, but essentially this is a congressional, the, it's a, it's a congressional prerogative essentially that they get to decide what is subject to ITAR and what is not subject to ITAR and what moves from the U.S. munitions list to the commerce control list. 
So I'm not sure if India has that kind of, or the India caucus in the Congress has that kind of a pull at the moment where it can make a case how we should be given special exception. You spoke about Australia, right? So currently there's a talk about the AUKUS, which is this trilateral defense setting to have a nuclear submarine in Australia between Australia, UK, and the US. And Australia has had to struggle to get a special exception, which it has not gotten, by the way. They have been the beneficiary of this new thing under the Department of State called the OGL, which is a pilot scheme called the Open Gender License 1 and an Open Gender License 2. This was issued for the first time last year in 2022. And what this essentially does is that it liberalizes the re-export and the re-transfer. So if there are certain entities who a particular technology could be exported to in Australia, now those entities get to re-export it to somewhere else in the world with this OGL scheme. And they also get to re-transfer it. So re-transfer is basically transferring it to somebody else within the same country. But they get to transfer it to somebody else within Australia itself. And this is the pilot scheme, so we don't know how it's playing out. We don't know what's actually happening here. We'll see the results over the course of the next few years. Given the fact that the Congress is not going to suddenly start creating an exception for every country, and given the fact how there is a time, you know, we're living in a time and sort of export controls are being tightened on various key technologies, I'm not sure if India is going to really enjoy a liberal special exception regime when it comes to technology for itself. Yeah, I think a lot would depend on how the Defense Innovation Bridge goes. Although there are also encouraging signs. So on 10th of May this year, uh, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo of the US and Indian Indian Minister for Commerce and Industry, Mr. Piyush Goyal, they had launched this strategic trade dialogue, which is essentially going to be a dialogue, from what I understand, between the Indian Foreign Secretary and I think the Undersecretary for Industry and Security under the Department of Commerce in the US. So this is encouraging. And the reason I say why this is encouraging compared to the earlier HTCG, which I spoke about at the beginning of this podcast is that unlike the NSSP, unlike the HTCG, there is no precondition, right? Like I said, there was a glide path under the HTCG. There was this talk about a high technology cooperation group, which will be based on reciprocal give and take. This is not the case in the STD or the strategic trade dialogue. Secondly, there is a direct connect here. There's a domain expertise here. Earlier. I think the discussion was between the foreign ministries or the Department of State. Here it's actually from the undersecretary of the industry of the BIS from the Department of Commerce. So you actually have a domain expert here you know, who's basically sitting forth and holding forth when it comes to what can be possibly transferred to India. I think the future looks good, but a lot would depend on how these current mechanisms like the Defense Innovation Bridge and the Strategic Trade Dialogue plays out. It's been a very interesting conversation overall. So I do want to have you talk about what is the ideal case scenario in the coming years, because obviously India is entering now election mode. And then I guess things will be busy with that for the next as in the coming year, for example. What is the scenario that you probably see from your perspective as an ideal scenario playing out as this ISET and the Defense Innovation Bridge and everything else mature. So what are you personally looking forward to then seeing tying out? Narayan, I'm a policy I'm a policy professional, so I'll give my inputs based on what I can think is achievable in the policy realm. And what I see is happening in the next 12 months is that you need to have a vision where both sides announce a deliverable and then they work backwards to achieve it. I think it's good to have incremental steps as well. 
it keeps it very it keeps it very i think very much grounded in the real world what's achievable and what's not but sometimes you have to take a leap of faith you have to announce a project where you introduce an idea as an idea to be possibly considered and then you have follow on prolonged negotiations which decide how do you go forward with that idea so to give you an example right? the indo us nuclear deal was a massive initiative we haven't seen anything like that before or since that thing was announced how that happened I think that was essentially a memo which was drafted by Dr. Philip Zelikow, who was then the counselor to Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, and they said that okay, we have two ways to go forward here. A, we basically think about the incremental approach, where we introduce ideas step by step, and when we do that, there's always a risk that people who are opponents of those ideas can kill them at the very preliminary step. The other way to go about it is basically you have a big bang model, which I was talking about. You are now upfront what you're going to do, and then you basically work backwards to achieve it. Now these things have worked, right? Like the AUKUS. AUKUS is basically an announcement, and now it is only now we're seeing the legal measures in all these countries who are, who are involved in the AUKUS fall into place. I spoke about the open general license. That is something which was issued only last year, whereas the AUKUS was announced around almost two years ago. You have to have this vision where you are going with this relationship when it comes to space cooperation. Another example I'll give you is that of the James Webb Space Telescope. This is something which was a multilateral project and succeeded in large part because it was announced earlier on. Once it was announced, they actually in 2017 came up with this initiative where they moved every part, every part which was subject to the ITAR under the James Webb Space Telescope project was moved to the Commerce Control List under the EAR. So you know there has to be a vision. Like, what do you hope to accomplish in the next two or three years when it comes to space cooperation? Hey, and let's work backwards to sort out the wrinkles. So it's not a long-winded answer, but it's something which I think is requiring vision from the very top, and I think would require a retooling and a recalibration of the things we spoke about, like the civil space cooperation joint working group, involve the space commission, involve the National Space Council from the U.S., see what they have to say about the matter, and then you announce some kind of a project and you work backward towards it. And I don't see anything wrong with that. So I think I'll leave it at that for now. Absolutely interesting conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really look forward to seeing all of this pan out in the coming years. I think obviously it's a great time to probably starting out the business in space if you are in India with all of these happening today, where all of this dialogue would never have been had the chance to mature over the last decades or so. So it'll be very interesting for everyone. Let's hope that things do work out for all of these companies and there'll be more and more space being done and more and more space also by young companies that are then maturing. Thanks again for taking the time in recording this episode with me. Thank you, Narayan. It was great to be on the podcast and I hope to have an update for you in the next few months, in the coming months possibly, and see what's happened since PM Modi's trip to Washington, D.C. Let's take stock of where this relationship on space cooperation stands in a few months. Thank you for listening in to this episode of the New Space India podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share this episode with anyone you believe will enjoy listening to it. You'll be able to find the New Space India podcast in any of the podcasting platforms that you may be using, including Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube and others. Do subscribe to the podcast in case you want to receive new episodes automatically. I'm grateful if you're able to leave a rating for the podcast which will help others discover it. Thank you for listening in again and the next episode will be out in the next 2 weeks as usual.